welcome to another episode of Best of the Left Podcast. Today we have clips from Hardball with Chris Matthews, Ring of Fire, Sam Cedar, Democracy Now!, Rachel Maddow, and the Young Turks. What is it about working men and women that drives you Republicans crazy? When does the greed stop? What is the price? Challenge corporate power. Damn what's wrong with people in this country. Say hell no until these weak need Democrats end this war. I am You leave this country, sir? You claim to defend it? Pathetic. He's a liar. He's a thug. He's a punk. One word. Washington, it's coming from the right, and it has been coming from the right since 1992. There's no question about that, except, of course, our media, because of their fetish of neutrality, can't call it like it obviously Our non-neutral media. Yeah, our media that says, oh, okay, no, i got to call it 50-50, even though it's obvious Karl Rove is poisoning the well, I'm going to say, no, well, maybe it's the Democrats. I mean, later in it's the... Like, it's like almost like the sexual obsessions with right-wing Republicans who always turn out to be like, have serious issues like Larry Craig. Yes, no question about it. And you know what? Here, I'm going to skip ahead to something. We'll come back to the debate in a second. But look at what Carl Rove did to Don Siegelman. God, this is a story. They're going to show it on 60 Minutes this weekend. You, I'm going to TV it. You should all watch it, too. He was the governor of Alabama, and what they did to him is a crime, okay? That man is sitting in jail right now. Carl Rove targeted Don Siegelman because he thought he's an up-and-coming star in the Democratic Party, and we have to destroy him. Now, there's a Republican operative, a Republican operative that has come out, talked to 60 Minutes, saying Carl Rove wanted to get Siegelman under any and all conditions, to the point where she asked that if, to, to see if uh, Carl Rove asked her to see if she can get naked pictures of him or pictures of him having an affair. Wow. And she looked and looked and looked and said, you know what? The problem is he's not having an affair. I can't get naked pictures of him because he isn't naked. I can't get pictures of him having an affair. Because he isn't having an affair. And then Carl Rove went to another tack. And get a load of this quote from her, okay? This is Jill Simpson, by the way, the a Republican operative in Alabama. Uh, and I'm getting this from 60 Minutes. But the case goes far beyond lured photos. Simpson, the GOP operative, alleged in a sworn statement to the House Judiciary Committee last year that, quote, she heard a close associate of Rove say that White House political advisor had spoken with the Department of Justice about pursuing Don Siegelman, a former Democratic governor of Alabama, with help from two Alabama U.S. attorneys. 
Siegelman was later indicted on 32 counts of corruption, convicted on seven of them, and is currently serving an 88-month sentence in federal prison. Wow. They went to go get him with U.S. attorneys that were tainted, that they purposely put in there to pursue political pursuits and political goals. Karl Rove is a bad player, okay? He That's is, what they do, man. And this is criminal. What they did to Don Siegelman, the former governor of Alabama, is criminal. The man is in jail now. And I've seen, I've read about this case before. And what they convicted on, on convicted him on was horse crap. They wouldn't let him defend himself because they picked a, a conservative judge who said, oh, yeah, yeah, that stuff, no, that's inadmissible. Your defense is inadmissible. We're going to just only allow the evidence that these U.S. attorneys handpicked by Karl Rove have got. I mean, look, this isn't theoretical. This isn't just politics. This isn't, you know, the U.S. attorney scandal. Oh, we got them and they got us and stuff like that. They actually went to destroy people's lives, and they did Jane, to Don Siegel. This isn't new, man. This happened throughout the 90s, throughout the Clinton presidency. People were, you know, had to lawyer up. They were being sued. They were being put in jail. People spent time in jail who didn't do anything. That's absolutely true. And it's been so, going on. So when you tell me that you're going to stop this bickering, I, I, wish, Good you luck. A, I wish you a lot of luck. But how, how are you going to stop the Carl Rose of this world from coming to destroy you, okay? So you better be prepared. And I think he is prepared. I hope he's prepared. But don't get naive on me. And lastly, the media, come on. How do you, look, 60 Minutes is doing a good job of covering this story. But how do you look at this and go, oh, 50-50? It's not 50-50. They're the bad guys. Young Turks. The memo says we got to work to make the facts Governor Don Siegelman, a Democrat, was set free by a federal court today pending his appeal of a bribery conviction. Siegelman was convicted almost two years ago of giving a health insurance bigwig a seat on a state board in exchange for arranging a half million dollars in contributions. Siegelman said it was a political persecution and said that Karl Rove was behind it all. I was there for nine months. And, I, you know, I, Bobby, you're, you're, you're right. It's, this is not about... It's not about me. It's not about my case. This is about America and about a quest now that must be pursued to find out who who was responsible for hijacking the Department of Justice and using it as a political tool to win elections. You know, I believe that that person uh, that Congress will ultimately hold responsible is Karl Rove. His his fingerprints are, are left all over this case. Uh, we've had a number of conflicts here in Alabama with Rove. I, my first, my first conflict with Karl Rove uh, was in 1994 when he came into Alabama to steal his first election, and I testified in federal court against his client. Um, and uh, the second uh, fingerprint that Rove left is Abramoff, uh, Rove's good friend, uh, started funneling millions and millions of dollars of Indian casino money into Alabama. Uh, through Ralph Reed and uh, 
Mike Scanlon and Grover Norquist to defeat me in 1998 and to, to defeat my lottery proposal in 1999 and then again to defeat me in 2002. Rose fingerprints again appear in, in 1999 when his client starts a, an investigation, a state investigation of me. Who was uh, that? Was that Bill Canary? Or? Uh, Bill, Bill, well, that was the Attorney General Bill Pryor. Um, okay, Bill Pryor, who was one of the most notor- notorious judicial nominees in the history of our country, and a outright partisan who was basically uh, the, uh, an attack dog for, for Karl Rove. You had him and you had Noel Hillman, who was the, the crooked federal judge from Camden, New Jersey, who is one of the other people who has completely corrupted the democratic process in our country and taken the Justice Department which is supposed to be the template of American integrity and turned it into a political outfit for muzzling and jailing political opponents of, of Karl Rose and the, Rove and the president. It, it's interesting that uh, you mentioned Noel Hillman because he was head of the <laughs> head of the uh, or chief of the public integrity section and actually came to Alabama several times to uh, speak up for the prosecution, even at a time when, you know, there was there was questions as to whether or not they were going to move forward with the case. He called the U.S. attorneys to Washington and told them to go back and take a top-to-bottom review of the Sigelman case once uh, they had lost uh, their their first run at me in, 19, in 2004. Uh, they, tried, they tried to drag you on, again, bogus, phony, ginned-up, trumped-up charges in front of a judge who actually had integrity, U.W. Clemens, right. in Birmingham. Yes. And they and he threw it out, and he said that the Justice Department ought to be investig- for, for, investigated for corruption, for bringing you up on those charges. Instead of investigating themselves for corruption, they took you in front of another judge who was a Bush appointee who had been handpicked by Karl Rove and then got a bunch of prosecutors who were handpicked by Karl Rove to prosecute you under these phony charges. It's one, of the, one of those prosecutors was the wife of, of Bill Canary, who was the national field director for uh, the Bush quail ticket. Uh, he worked with Rove for some 20 years before they came to Alabama to take over the Alabama Supreme Court. And in the process, Bill Canary found a wife, and uh, Carl Rove... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure, assisted in her appointment uh, as the U.S. attorney. And it was, it, was, it was Bill Canary's wife who started the federal investigation at a time when her husband was working for my uh, Republican opponent. Uh, we asked for her recusal, demanded her recusal, and, and she stepped aside, uh, but not far enough to disassociate herself from, from the case. But And, and interestingly... Even though a FOIA request has been filed, and even though the House, United States House Judiciary Committee, has requested those recusal papers, the Department of Justice still, still to this day, is withholding over 500 documents that would shed some light on the origins of this case. Talk about one of the informants in this case, um, somebody who actually was a Republican. Uh, who who decided that they couldn't go along with the with the plot to lock you up? Yeah, it's it's interesting that um, you know we I suspected you know from the from circumstantial evidence that Karl Rove was was deeply involved in my prosecution. Uh, I mean, it was just so obvious that you know 
that it was easy for me to, to put uh, two and two together and connect those dots. But then uh, last year, about this time, a, a respected Republican lawyer from North Alabama who has been a Republican political operative and close to this, this current uh, Republican administration in Alabama, came forward and, and uh, said that she had been part of a, a conference call with Bill Canary when Bill Canary said that he had talked to Carl and Carl had spoken to the Department of Justice and they were going to pursue Sigelman, that they didn't have to worry about uh, taking me out of the political arena any other way, that his girls, the two U.S. attorneys, were going to take care of me uh, for the governor and the governor's son, who were also, uh, the governor's son was also part of that telephone conversation. And this has been given in a sworn statement to the, to the United States uh, House Judiciary Committee. And while everybody else that has been named in her affidavit and named in her statement uh, has said that their memory doesn't, uh, uh, can't go back that far, can't remember whether those conversations took place, she is the only person who has come forward and, and, uh, and given sworn testimony. And she has um, stuck with her story. And she has stuck with her story on more than one occasion. She was, and her name is Dana Jill Simpson. Dana Jill Simpson. We've got to, you know, thank our heavenly Father for people like that who will, who will come forward, who have nothing to gain and everything to lose by speaking the truth. And it is my hope now that uh, that Congress will focus uh, on this investigation and will reveal the truth to the American public and will follow those leads wherever they go. Bill Sheriff mentioned uh, in one of his questions for the weekend watchdog uh, as to, uh, to just basically, I guess, to see if any of these I, I don't know what what to even call people like Tim Russert and, and George Stephanopoulos anymore. I real I honestly don't. Uh, if they would raise the notion of this blockbuster story that came out last week in the New York Times, an investigation into the uh, Pentagon, <clears throat> essentially, I, I, <clears throat> there it's a psyops program. Essentially, is what it is, uh, uh, orchestrated on the American public. Uh, fair reports. Fairness, uh, fair at fair.org. According to the Times, the Pentagon recruited over 75 retired generals to act as, quote, message force multipliers. <laughs> as Lauren Ra- rolls her eyes in support of the Iraq war, receiving special Pentagon briefings and talking points that the anal- analysts would offer to often parrot on national television, quote, even when they suspected the information was false or inflated. The Times even noted that at one 2003 briefing, the military pundits were told, quote, we don't have any hard evidence about Iraq's illicit weapons. A shocking admission the analysts decided not to share with the public. Now, why did they do this? Because apparently many of these generals, if not all of them, sit on boards or they're chairmen or they work for, they're hired or they're lobbyists for defense contractors. And apparently... If they didn't go on and parrot Pentagon talking points, they were then subject to losing those contracts. Liars for hire. Exactly. 
Nation Magazine reported uh, back in uh, April, uh, I guess, uh, 2003 even. McCaffrey, at one point, told MSNBC, this is uh, Barry McCaffrey, one of those NBC generals for hire, I guess, told MSNBC viewers early in the war, thank God for the Abrams tank and the Bradley fighting vehicle. Unbeknownst to viewers, McCaffrey was sitting on the board of a company called IDT, which received the multi-million dollar contracts related to both those pieces of military hardware. Uh, folks, Medley Butler once said, war is a racket. And guess what? You just got punked. You just got punked. Stars and Stripes reported uh, yesterday, because apparently there's some type of blackout about this story. I, I can't imagine why. These cable news, these national uh, broadcast news outlets wouldn't report this story about how they essentially defrauded their viewers by putting on paid hacks and not identifying them as such. Bribed hacks. I wonder if in the lead up to the Iraq war, Lauren, that every time one of these generals got in front of the uh, their microphone, and their camera, I wonder if there was a little scroll, if they, if they put that little chyron, you know, the, the, the uh, one-third, where they label their, their name and their former rank. I wonder if they put their, like, a little subtitle, essentially extorted by the Pentagon to repeat Pentagon talking points. I wonder if that would have had the same impact. No, I think they like to just say, happening now. <laughs> exactly. That's better. But do you think, Sam, do you think it's just laziness on the part of these cable networks? I mean, reading the New York Times story, that's what it seemed to me. Well, I think it's convenient laziness. I mean, they get these generals. They, they're able to put some uh, uniforms on and uh, continue their war cheerleading. Now, you remember there was that story of the guy who um, Rick Perlstein uh, reminds us of this, I think it was. Um well, maybe it wasn't Rick Perlstein, but there was uh, one guy who, who actually did a Vote Vets ad. And CBS pulled him off. Pulled him off the air because they said, well, we can't have that type of conflict of interest. Where we actually have somebody who's in an ad talking about the Bush administration or the war effort. But Vote Vets is a nonprofit, isn't it? That's right. So how is that a conflict? of? Because you're, they're not doing it for profit. Oh, right. <laughs> the conflict of the interest of everyone making money. Exactly. <laughs> Stars and Stripes reports on Saturday the Defense Department has temporarily stopped feeding information to retired military officers pending a review of the issues, said Robert Hastings, Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Defense for Public Affairs. Uh, what was it? What, what did they call that back in uh, Brave New World? Minister of Propaganda? I'm not exactly sure what it was. The New York Times first reported on Sunday the Defense Department was giving information to retired officers serving as pundits for various media organizations in order to garner favorable media coverage. Rick Perlstein goes on to quote former retired Green Beret and former Fox News analyst Robert Bellacqua. It was them saying, quote, we need to stick our hands up your back and move your mouth for you. I have a feeling they probably didn't say back. Oh, goodness. From Kenneth Allard at the National Defense University, night and day I felt we'd been hosed. This was a coherent, active policy. Hate, rage, greed, sin. 
bubbles in the water, wrinkles in my skin. Our own little perfect world. A puzzle pieced by our imperfections. We see no evil and we hear no evil. We see no evil and we hear no evil. We see no evil and we hear no evil. We see no evil and we hear no evil. there that I met James Lee, a former Marine from California who served two tours of duty in Iraq in 2001 and 2004. In 2004, he was in Fallujah, where he got his finger shot off in friendly fire. He's been back in Iraq more recently, this time as an embedded photographer. Lee is now a journalism student at San Francisco State University, filed reports from Iraq for the Golden Gate Express. But earlier this month, Lee was abruptly de-embedded on April 2nd, just before General Petraeus was due to brief Congress on progress in Iraq. Lee was ordered to leave Basra just a few hours after he'd gotten there. I spoke to Lee while on the road in Santa Barbara. Count your experience. Um, my name is James Lee. I'm a photojournalist. Um, I'm also a Marine veteran. Served at two combat deployments in Iraq. And after my last deployment, I was, uh, well, in Fallujah back in 2004, I was shot by another Marine unit during a combat operation and ended up being evacuated after being injured during a friendly fire incident. Um, after leaving the Marine Corps, I decided to return to Iraq as a photojournalist. And what happened? Um, I was with the, uh, the military for about five months total. Uh, my last assignment was in the city of Basra. Um, I had become aware of a decline in the security situation in some neighborhoods around Baghdad and in Basra and decided that um, I wanted to go down and photograph and to document the Iraqi army's ability or inability to conduct independent combat operations in Iraq. Um, I arrived in Basra after a three-day convoy with Iraqi soldiers from Baghdad down to Basra. I was only in Basra about four hours when I was notified by the public affairs office assigned to Basra um, that they didn't want any Western media in Basra covering the fighting and that an aircraft was being dispatched down to Basra to pick me up to fly me back to Baghdad. What was the reason they gave? Originally I was told that an order came directly from the office of General, General Petraeus that they didn't want any Western media covering the events. And, uh, Why? Because uh, Petraeus was in Washington at the time, and they were concerned about images coming out from Basra that um, didn't support their mission at the time. Is that what you speculated, or that's what they said? That's what I was told by the public affairs officer. That's what he thought the reason was. I thought that it contradicted um, some guidelines that General Petraeus had published to his subordinate command um, directly relating to the media. And I had obtained Petraeus's uh, personal phone number a few weeks earlier from a French reporter who had interviewed him. So I called that number, and he had already left for Washington, but what it was agitant said he answered the phone and said that that order didn't come from Petraeus and that I had every right to remain in Basra. I notified the unit that I was with about that fact, and they changed their story and said, well, you're now able to stay. But about two hours later, they reversed their position and said, now a new authority was ordering me out of Basra, and then it wasn't Petraeus. I was told that it was a two-star Marine general. They wouldn't identify who he was. 
And later, once I arrived back in Baghdad after being forced to leave Basra, I was told that the order now came from the Iraqi army themselves. So they had quite a few reasons why I couldn't be there doing my job. Why didn't they want you to see what, or what was the reality on the ground? The reality on the ground was more than a thousand Iraqi soldiers refused to fight the Mahdi army. Whether they were afraid that they didn't have the ability to do it or, or they didn't believe that they should be fighting the Mahdi army. For whatever reason, many of them put down their weapons and refused to go into Basra and, and fight the Mahdi army. And I think those images would have been very powerful. And I think it would have created a lot of doubt on, on the part of the American public about the Iraqi army's commitment to uh, coalition missions in Iraq. What was Fallujah like when you were there as a soldier? Um, extremely chaotic. We had surrounded the city of Fallujah. What month was this in 2004? Uh, April. The, the first siege. The first siege. Um, the city had basically been evacuated by most people, but there were still pockets of uh, some civilians who decided to remain behind and safeguard their homes and shops. What was the difference between being a soldier and an embedded journalist? Um, the ability to, to ask questions and to uh, interact, I think, on a more intimate uh, level with Iraqi civilians. I mean, I had no interaction really with uh, Iraqis while I was wearing a uniform. It wasn't until I returned as a civilian journalist that I had the chance to sit down and speak with Iraqi interpreters and uh, those Iraqis that did speak English. Did your view of Iraq change uh, speaking to Iraqis? I think it did. It was my first opportunity, I think, to, to meet Iraqis. I mean, I'd been to Iraq twice before, once for the invasion and once for the Battle of Fallujah during my second deployment, and I never had the chance to interact with an Iraqi. And it wasn't until um, the end of 2006, when I returned to Iraq, that I had the chance to sit down and speak with Iraqis for the first time. And how did the soldiers treat you as a journalist? You know, I had thought returning back um, to Iraq as a, as a former Marine veteran and now as a civilian photographer that I have greater access and I realized that once you take the uniform off and you pick up a camera they no longer view you as a, as a marine veteran you're you're now a journalist and I wasn't I, I wasn't always welcomed I had some problems trying to tell the stories that I wanted to tell like what um, one of my embeds I when I was in Afghanistan I was embedded with an army unit and uh, I was forced to remain on a forward operating base for 10 days and was never allowed to leave the base with the patrol or to go out into the community where, this, where the real stories were. So my only access to any of the locals was an Iraqi army unit that was uh, housed on the same forward operating base. An Afghan? In Afghanistan. An and Afghan I, army unit? An Afghan army unit. So I had the opportunity to speak with them about their feelings about us being in Afghanistan and, and about the changes in their country. But if it wasn't for those uh, soldiers being on the same base, I would have basically been locked out of any access with the Afghanis. And why were they trying to stop you from meeting them? I was told that earlier um, in the year they had had some problems with, uh, with German reporters and they weren't happy with the story that was told and they were no longer going to support uh, media missions and they were just going to wait me out. What did the Afghan soldiers tell you? Um, that there's really limited opportunities for them in Afghanistan and by joining the Afghan military elites it's an option for some um, credibility, some income, some stability but mo most of them I thought would rather be doing other things with their time. They were really separated from their families and from their communities and they're pretty isolated when they're uh, out serving in these forward operating bases. Um, 
ultimately in Basra they got a plane to get you? They did. Um, they originally wanted me out that day when I was first notified, but the weather wouldn't permit them to land. So I had to remain over for about another 10 hours before they were able to get a flight the following morning. During that period of time, I was able to go out and take some photographs and interview some of the Iraqi soldiers that were getting ready to move into Basra. But a thousand refused to fight. Over, I think it was 1,300 was the last report that I'd heard. And now with Iraq's liberation. Watchdog Group now says more than 10 million White House emails are missing. Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington described this massive hole in White House email records last April. At that time, they thought the number was 5 million. Now they say it is more than 10 million emails. First off, there are two uh, federal laws, the Presidential Records Act and the Federal Records Act, which govern how records are being kept for posterity. In particular, we're looking at the Presidential Records Act in this case, and the key issue here is whether or not email messages are considered records at all, and, and numerous federal court judges have adjudicated that they are in fact considered records, although every White House going back to Ronald Reagan has argued that email transmissions are not considered records, and of course the courts have said that yes, they are, and therefore they should be recorded for posterity. So we're looking at a history where each president, and we're talking about both Republican presidents and Democratic presidents, have, have wanted to prevent the full body of email records from being transmitted over to the National Archives. And, and really, when we're talking about the Presidential Records Act, we're talking about taking this body of communication and delivering it to the National Archives and then sometime after a period of, of years, that information then becomes available to the general public with certain restrictions. During the Clinton administration, the Clinton administration had that battle and then conceded that the emails did belong to the National Archives and the American public and implemented a very workable system as to how to store and classify those emails. It was broken at first, and in fact, there was a glitch in it that didn't allow it to store any emails that from somebody whose name began with the letter D. I recall during the Clinton administration that Representative Dan Burton, the Republican from Florida, or from Indiana rather, um, had huge hearings and spent $11 million investigating what he suspiciously regarded as a deliberate attempt uh, by the Clinton administration to lose all the emails from people whose names began with the letter D. And in the end, the Clinton, it was proven to be a glitch that was completely non-deliberate, and they fixed it. And then they had a system that worked. Why isn't that system still in place in the Bush administration? Well, that becomes kind of interesting. I mean, on one hand, you're looking at the Clinton administration was, was quite a number of years ago, and technology changes over time. But the Clinton administration's email system, and in fact the early Bush administration's email system, was based on IBM's Lotus Notes, which is an enterprise-class management system for email. Um, and, and many of, of the world's largest companies run on Lotus Notes. So 
it's certainly the kind of thing that can handle the 3,000 employees that exist in the White House, since there are many, many note sites with tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of employees being managed by this enterprise class email system. They also used an archiving system that connected to notes so that every email message that was sent would be archived in, in the, uh, this archiving system for you know, compliance with the Presidential Records Act. Now, right around 2002 and 2003, which, which as you might remember was during the time of the buildup to war in Iraq and the beginning of the Iraq War, the White House decided to remove the Lotus Notes messaging system and replace it with Microsoft Outlook and Microsoft Exchange. Which this is actually described one the, as a very primitive system. Well, actually, Exchange and Outlook are fine systems. It's the way they archive it that's very, very primitive. The actual technology behind Exchange and Outlook are, are also and can be configured to be enter, enterprise-class stuff. The gotcha is that instead of putting in an enterprise-class archiving system, what's come out recently in hearings only in the last month or so, is that the White House didn't put in any archiving system. In fact, they're storing all of these, these email messages that are meant to be archived in, in something that, that the geeks call PST files, which are, are, are basically Outlook's core file storage. But the problem is, is those files are very shaky in terms of reliability, and the White House is storing them at or above their safe load limit. And the thing is, is it's not that this is the only way they could have done it. There are a large number of excellent companies out there that provide archiving technology for Microsoft Exchange and Outlook. So when they switched from the IBM environment to the Microsoft environment, there was really no reason for them not to also acquire an archiving system, but they did not. And that, of course, is, is one of our big questions, is why, why didn't they do it? And frankly, why would you switch a major piece of infrastructure right in the middle of the build-up to war? That's one of my bigger questions, because it's, it's, it's very curious to me that, I, that you would want to yank out one of your command and control systems just as you're going to war. And somehow, during this process, virtually every email that was written by Karl Rove during that period just disappeared. Curious, isn't it? And how do you make that work? Well, again, the information that's been coming out is, uh, at least according to the current chief information officer of the White House, that computers that were being used at that time were apparently destroyed, as were their hard drives. Now, we don't have independent verification of this, nor do we have independent verification of where those drives went. We just, we just have a report that says that they were sent to an agency for destruction, but we don't even know what agency that is at this point. We further have a report from the White House that said that all of these messages were deleted, and then we have a subsequent report that said that they were not deleted, and yet another subsequent report that said that they were deleted. So, again, the facts behind what's going on there are very curious. And we also have staff members who are, being, who are testifying in front of Congress who were not there at the time that these messages were created. So we have very much secondhand information. The net, net, net of all this is it's very possible that there are records somewhere in the White House that can be turned over to the National Archives, but the IT infrastructure and the most likely the willingness to go through the effort of doing that is not there. And so um, that's why there, there's a, a, a judge in, in D.C. right now that is in the process of making a decision about whether or not to compel the White House to go to the next step in, in locating these digital files and turning them over to the National Archives. Well, during the Clinton administration, uh, after Dan Burton's complaint, there was also a federal case, and they were, and the White House, the Clinton White House, was ordered by a federal judge to spend $11 million recovering 
many lost emails. Why can't we get an order for this White House to do the same thing? Well, that's what we're waiting on Judge Facciola to be able to do at this point. He's basically been going through the process of, of asking the White House for this information. They then responded with why this was an over, overwhelming burden for them, because apparently spending 5 or $6 million is a much greater ver- burden than perhaps spending $12 billion a month on a war. And so you've got this, this combination of things going on of, of we don't have the records of why we built up to go to this war, and yet we can spend money on that, but apparently spending a, a much lower amount to ensure the solidity of White House email is not the case. And, and the thing to remember is that this is not just about this administration. The IT, the information technology structure of how the White House does email and messaging is very shaky. And one of my recommendations is not just approaching this from a Bush administration point of view, although there are certainly questions, but more from a, a, an infrastructure point of view that the way the government deals with email at the White House needs to be changed. Is it your opinion that uh, that the records were deliberately lost or destroyed by somebody at the White House based that upon is, the evidence that you've seen? That is a mind read. I can tell you that I have seen shocking negligence in, in best practices in, in, in the IT operation there. In other words, no... No IT manager, from, from the tiniest company to the largest company, would do what, what, what's gone on or what's been reported and keep his or her job. But I, I can't tell you um, whether they purposely deleted it or it was a, a vast set of mistakes. Frankly, I find it hard to believe. There's going to be lots more to say in coming days about this kind of incredible John McCain scandal this week. The scandal over McCain essentially selling his office in the Senate to the highest lobbyist bidders, intervening in merger decisions and government investigations and all these other things on behalf of lobbyists and their clients, corporations who gave him political donations and flew him around on their corporate jets and threw him fundraisers. It's disgusting stuff, even if he wasn't sleeping with the lobbyists as well. Uh, which he says he didn't do. When the New York Times story came out yesterday or late the night before, John McCain's campaign was ready because they knew it was coming. They were ready with a long, written, point-by-point response to the allegation in the Times article. And one of the things they claimed in their response was that the client that employed the lobbyist, who McCain says he wasn't sleeping with, um, that company, McCain said yesterday, never asked him to help out with government approval for a deal that they wanted to do. This is what they said in their response, their written response that they put out yesterday in response to the Times. Quote, no representative of Paxson Communications personally asked Senator McCain to send a letter to the FCC. Now, our pal Michael Isakoff at Newsweek magazine today has turned up something rather inconvenient, given that claim. He's turned up a deposition from 2002 from some legal case 
in which John McCain swears under oath in his deposition that Paxson Communications did contact him and ask him to write that letter for him. In fact, he says it was definitely the head of the company, Mr. Paxson. <laughs> if uh, John McCain's denials now contradict his own statements, if his denials now contradict his own sworn legal statements from six years ago, does he still get to be the Straight Talk Express guy? Or do we get to blame his fight with himself on that darn liberal media? from the Young Turks. You're listening to the best of the left. There's a lot more Young Turks at our website, theyoungturks.com. Please check out our daily video clips and our freewheeling rolling post-game show where we talk about politics and cover other fun subjects. And if that's not enough, you can always subscribe to the Young Turks podcast with a complete show. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Priest with clips provided by Chris Priest and members of the Best of the Left community. Thank you, Chris, for another excellent show. I'd like to announce that we have found a new host for Best of the Left podcast, so this will probably be my last time hosting the show. I'm not going to tell you who that new host is, but I think that... You all will be pleasantly surprised. I will still be involved with the show, but my role will be more behind the scenes, um, maintaining the website and moderating the forums. And also, if we have any uh, live chat events, I'll probably be making sure those go smoothly also. Um, so yeah, I'm excited about this and we are moving forward with the show. Since this is my last time, I would like to go out with a clip that I recently heard on, uh, well, one of the last episodes of World on Fire podcast. It's a clip, um, of Amy Goodman speaking at the second annual climate super rally that was held recently in Washington DC and in this clip she talks about the importance and power of independent media it kind of sums up nicely why I got involved with this show so I want to play that for you and I just want to thank again everyone who's helped me produce the show over the last few months, contributed clips, 
um, and really just gotten involved with the show in any way. And also a huge thank you to Jay for letting me host the show. So here's that clip, and let's keep the show going. And we move from this corporatizing of the public space, of public universities, to who sponsors the media. And that's where I'll end. We need to protect independent media, corporate. commercial free media that is not brought to you by oil companies, by weapons manufacturers, not brought to you by biotechnology companies, but brought to you by people like you. We write in our second book, Static, and the reason we call it that is in this high-tech digital age with high-definition television and uh, digital media, all the media brings us is static, a veil of distortion and lies and misrepresentations and half-truths that obscure reality, when what we need is the media to bring us the dictionary definition of static, and that is criticism, opposition, unwanted interference. We need a media that covers power, not covers for power. We need a media that is the fourth estate, not for the state, and a media that covers the movements like you are a part of that create static and make history. As the Pennsylvania primary results are about to be announced tonight, I think it's so critical this year what you do. It's not so much who you support, but that you do something. I interviewed a woman recently from Guyana about globalization. And at the end of the conversation, I thanked her, and you know how we use the music breaks to move a guest out and the next guest in. Well, as we were moving the next guest in to talk about the U.S. elections, I was saying goodbye to her, but she remained sitting. And I said, our segment is over. And she said, no, I will be a guest on this next segment. And I said, but it's on the U.S. elections and you're from Guyana. And she said, I know. I think everyone in the world should get to vote for President of the United States. Well, they don't, but you do. And every little thing you do this year matters. And if you don't think the people at the top represent exactly what you believe, get involved at the bottom for your school board, local elections, state legislature, congressional elections, and by the time you turn around, you will be truly believing in and supporting the people who are running for the highest offices of the land. Yes, the person that occupies that position occupies the most powerful position in the world, but there is a force more powerful, and it's all of you all together. And we need a media that expresses that. We need a media that presents the full diversity of opinion. When you look at the lead-up to the invasion, hard to believe it was five years ago. We've been involved in Iraq longer than the U.S. was involved in World War II. The media beat the drums for war. 
all of the major networks. Fair did a study of the four major nightly newscasts, ABC, NBC, CBS, and the PBS NewsHour with Jim Lehrer in those two weeks around Colin Powell giving that push for war at the UN that he called a stain on his career. There were 393 interviews done around war in those two weeks. Only three were with anti-war leaders, three of almost 400. That is no longer a mainstream media. That is an extreme media that doesn't represent the majority of people in this country. Don't forget, it's not just public radio and television, the places that broadcast Democracy Now!, which is now, by the way, broadcasting on over 700 public radio and television stations around the country. Broadcasting here in Washington on WPFW every morning at 8 o'clock. Support 89.3 FM. And at 6 o'clock, repeated. You can also ask, for example, Howard University Public Television to broadcast Democracy Now! We're also video and audio podcasting at democracynow.org. The audience larger than Larry King, larger than the cable networks. We can build independent media in this country through public access, Pacifica Radio, NPR, public broadcasting, keeping the, net, the Internet open and available to all. We must support network neutrality. Independent media is critical to all of this because the media are the most powerful institutions on earth, more powerful than any bomb, more powerful than any missile. The Pentagon's deployed the media and we have to take it back. Shining shoes.